Okay, folks, find Psalm 86. We'll read just verse 11 of Psalm 86. Read just verse 11 of Psalm 86. In Psalm 86, verse 11, David writes, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Let's pray. Father God, I love and I adore you. God, I thank you for this opportunity to come and preach the gospel. And I pray, Father God, I've prayed and I've prayed, Father God, that that's exactly what happens, Father God, that I will preach the gospel, Father, that I'll preach a, a very specific, truthful, biblical gospel, Father God. Not anything broad, but something, Father God, that's just as narrow as you laid it forth, Father God, that represents that that straight path, that narrow road, Father God, that leads to redemption. I pray, God, that I preach the cobblestones of that path accurately, Father God. That will leave anyone out or unturned, Father God, but every single one of them is preached, God, to the uttermost of my ability and beyond. <coughs> that this church doesn't have to settle for what I can do, Father God, but they can see through me, God, what you can do, God, what you can do with a, with a sermon and in a pulpit, Father God, just like this one. That how you, God, can reign over the hearts of men and women, how you can take control of, of wayward and, and, and rebellious hearts, Father God, right now. How all of that can happen right here in this room, Father God. That's what we pray for, God. We pray for a great movement of your power. I pray for your past, for your passion, Father God. I pray for your thunder and your lightning, Father God, to, to be seen through this message, Father, and to, to resound in the hearts of people who are desperate for it. Father God, we love you. Bring us all together. Unite us, Father God, around the gospel today, Lord. We love you and we plead to you now, Father God. And we ask you, please, God, send your Holy Spirit upon us, Father. Shake us out of apathy, Father God, and bless us, Father God, to be the fire that rages for the truth of the gospel. We love you, Father. In the name of Christ, I pray, God. Amen. Now, I want to just just begin, and i got a couple things to add that um, I haven't put in there, but they're here and ready. Um, Kierkegaard said this in his book in 1847, uh, Works of Two Love. He wrote, there are two ways to be fooled. One is to believe what isn't so. The other is to refuse to believe what is so. Now, I want to I wanna use that as a jumping off point. It's a wonderful uh, illustration. Nothing's more precious than the truth. Nothing's more precious than the truth. And the only infinitely precious truth which saves, redeems, justifies, and, confro- and conforms to God the unbelieving heart and life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, despite what our culture believes today, and I think it's believed it for a long time, we're just brash about it today. <coughs> our culture believes that there are many branches which lead to God legitimately. Now, what I know to be true is this, is that there are not many branches leading to God. The gospel is singular and it is defensible. There's one gospel as there is one God. It is the way God has set it forth. Now, um, it's not just uh, becoming clear about that gospel, but it's also becoming clear about our responsibility to that truth 
and also the right reaction to that truth. I think one of the other mistakes that we make as a culture is that we think the gospel is, oh God loves me, come and be saved. And that's all it is. The reality is, the gospel is, oh God loves me, come and be saved and live for God. So many people believe two-thirds of that and not that final third that's the most telling and most important is that the life given over to God in the Gospel is a life lived for God. That the eternity which He has planted in us engrafted into us through the Gospel is an eternity that's supposed to show itself every single day. Look at the core of this message is, more than anything else, the accurate portrayal of the person of Jesus. There is no real gospel without the real Jesus. Without Jesus, as the Bible reveals Him to be at its heart, the message of any supposed faith is rendered unsaving and irrelevant. If you don't have the real Jesus, the whole Jesus, the biblical Jesus, then you don't have a saving faith. Without the real Gospel illustrating the real Christ, what people believe condemns them and does not save them. There's no just enough. We fulfill enough of this. No, it's not that way at all. We are all supposed to be on a, in a pursuit of the most accurate, the most biblical interpretation of the Gospel and the most accurate, most biblical interpretation of the Christ of the Gospel. It is our everyday homework. It is our passion and our obsession. Only in the name of Jesus. And that name encompassing the facts concerning the nature, character, works, and righteousness of God the Son. The name's just not a name. It's not a magic word. It's not superstitious. The name reveals who He truly is. Just to say it does nothing. But to understand it does everything. Only in the name is salvation to be understood and embraced by the lost man or lost woman. Luke writes in Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is singularly about the name of Jesus and the gospel of that name. The name of Jesus unlocks for the human heart and mind the essential truth of all creation. The attributes of the infinite divinity of God as expressed through His triune nature. See, the name of Jesus unlocks who God is. The gospel of Jesus Christ unlocks who God is in His entirety. So that we, we get that, that magnificent pursuit how can I know God better? How can I know Him in all His glory? That's what the Gospel does. It's not, about just, me, it's not just about your salvation. Don't limit it. Don't sully it with our problems. The Gospel has always been about the glory of God. The revelation of the glory of God and everything that He is to a people undeserving who should have marched through life in darkness. And instead God opens their eyes. 
The works of righteousness completed on the cross for the propitiation of His people's sins. That's Jesus. The ongoing work of intercession by the Savior so that the church is saved to the uttermost. Again, Jesus. And finally, the power of the Comforter in leading the people of God, the Holy Spirit. And alongside these are a depth of vital notions. We call them doctrines. All those systematic ways in which we understand just how great God really is. And I know you say this and people get so, think you're being so studious. Not at all. Doctrine should translate to passion every single time. Doctrine should translate to submission every single time. And supplication to the ends of the earth is the goal of doctrine. Always. I want to fill your heads with those vital notions called doctrine. Why? So God gets more and more and more glorious. So glorious that we can't ignore Him for a second. The problem is that a significant number of people in this world find a way or try to find a way to be in Christ and salvation and ignore Him and everything else. Somehow I can be saved and do what I want. It's a nonsensical idea. Nonsensical idea. But it is what the world wants, isn't it? The world wants to live as they please and think as they please. For the believer, the gospel journey does not end at the cross. And you go about your business. Which is what a lot of people think, isn't it? Well, I got saved, everything's okay now. Not to worry about anything anymore. I can just do, live my life the way I want. It commences at Calvary, begins at Calvary. It reaches its apex and the height of suffering for truth. And that is something we can never divorce from ourselves. Is the idea that God's truth always separates us out. God's truth leads me to be a different kind of person than all my friends are going to be. Than oftentimes my family is going to be. Truly believing what God says makes me a radically different person. It has to. Suffering for the truth. Then it culminates at the throne of glory where we see our saving God face to face. See, the end of all that, the end of that is face to face with God. What we believed, what we've longed for, what we struggle with doctrine to embrace and to understand, we now see in all His glory. All of it. Kingly. Magnificent. We now see Him. Our obligation is to the shackle-destroying gospel. That's it. Everyone in this room who's born again owes a debt of blood not just to Christ, but to His gospel. His gospel is precious. It's not to be fooled around with. It's not to be compromised or rationalized. It is the song of our hearts. Our warfare today is for truth over lies. We want real truth. For accuracy more than tolerance and the layered and tailored nature of postmodern belief. Because that's what we do. We, 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 we fool around in the margins. We attack the edges. And we manage to move the message slightly right or slightly left. So it says things it doesn't naturally say, nor does it willingly want to say. We use our intellect to corrupt what ought to be in our hearts and minds incorruptible. It's not a hateful message. It's a glorious and beautiful message. As Carl F.H. Henry said, 
The gospel is only good news if it arrives in time. And I would add to Henry's comment, the gospel is only good news if it's really the gospel. If it's really what God said. And for the powerful and saving influence on the surrendered to on the surrender to gospel of the everlasting God the Son. A gospel that is shackle destroying and a gospel that must be surrendered to. I can't recast it in my image. I can't make it say what I want it to say. It says what it says. Those who are born again have managed through the power of God to surrender to its truth. To a truth that's above them. Beyond them. But it makes sense, doesn't it? Because there was enough sense in you and enough truth in you without the gospel and without the deliberate effort of God, you'd get saved on your own. You'd find a way around it. But there's not. There's not enough truth in us. There's not any. There's not a heart that seeks God. It takes an unsullied gospel and the divine power of God to save men and women. There's any way somebody would have figured it out, but there's no way. There's no way at all. It has to be surrendered to, given in to. At issue is our collective willingness to believe in Christ as He is, not as we hope that He would be. I think there are a ton of people that come to the gospel willingly because they understand at some point the, the weight of sin in their lives, and they know they want some deliverance, they want to feel better about themselves. But along the way, they want to remake Jesus to fit their expectations. He simply doesn't do that. He's both the torn Lamb of God, sacrificed for our sins, and He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah, as we sung about today. He's coming to conquer. He's both. And, and so many other things. Karl Barth wrote this. He said, man can certainly keep on lying. But he cannot make truth falsehood. He can certainly rebel. But he can accomplish nothing which abolishes the choice of God. We can have our little fits all we want to. And we can kick our feet and lay in the floor and cry and scream. And say God's unfair and he shouldn't have done that and blah blah blah. He's hateful, whatever. We can say that all we want to say it. But the reality is, is that one greater than ourselves has chosen this path. One greater than ourselves has said this is how it will be. God decided. The most uniquely American thing. I realize someone talking about this, maybe we don't understand it. I'll try to explain it. The most uniquely American thing is to believe as you see fit. That's America. A nation founded by rebels. But treasonous, seditious men and women who looked at the rightful authority placed over them and thumbed their noses at it at Lexington and Concord and a thousand other places. And when, when the East Coast became too, too uh, regimented in its thinking, moved to the frontier to believe just what they wanted to believe and said no one could tell them what to believe. That is exactly American, isn't it? The most American thing in the world. If you tell me I've got to believe it, I'll believe the opposite just to spite you. It's how we are wired to experience life by our own rules. And allow no one to tell you what to think or what to feel. That is 
how we are together. In many aspects of life, such individuality is lauded and admired. You show us a man who's a rogue or a woman who's a rogue, who does their own thing, who marches to the beat of their own drum. We like those kind of people. We lift them up. We vote for them. We vote for them. That's my kind of guy. Breaks all the rules. It's my girl right there. She's tough. She does what she wants to. We do that all the time. Unfortunately, God has chosen the gospel to unleash all of himself and his nature and character. All those things that are uniquely his own. It flies in the face of the way we are naturally wired. We don't want anybody telling us what to think. The essence of the gospel is that God tells us what to think. The essence of the gospel is that God tells us what to feel. The Bible preaches to us. We have a faith delivered by preaching. Delivered of one man standing above others and telling them what they ought to think. I understand how hard it is. Because I've been most of my life in your place. But God created it specifically that way. That through the foolishness of preaching, men and women could be saved. Daniel helps reveal this character in Daniel 2, 21-22. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. Look, saving truth. Access to light which dwells with and in the triune God comes from believing His way and not our way. It's not what you and I think and not what you and I feel. It's about what God believes, what God says is true. And whether we're willing to believe that or not. From facing the truth about ourselves and our limitations. It's anti-us. It's anti-us. Every accomplishment you have in the world, no matter how great they are, are nothing in comparison to your sin. Everything you're good at in this world, there's some people in this room who are so fantastically good at everything, doesn't matter. Because it will not save you. It's whether you, you will forsake yourself and embrace Jesus through His Gospel. And it will cost you pride. It will cost you fake peace of mind. It will cost you position. It will cost you popularity. It will cost you power. It will cost you everything in the world that the world thinks is important. But what you get out of it is the glory of God. What you get out of it is the face of God in His heaven. That's what you get. And it's so worth it. And from reaching the point of turning our back on our competency in favor of the infinite righteousness of the Son of God. We're going to turn our back on ourselves. Now, believing the gospel is to understand the vitality and the indispensable nature of truth. Now, Jesus speaks to the truth of the gospel and He says, very famously in John 8, 31-32, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, that's right, these Jews had believed in Jesus. He says to them, If you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples. So, they had believed in Jesus, but Jesus provided them with a caveat, didn't He? And the caveat was, if you live in the truth, if you abide in the truth, you're really disciples. You're what you're supposed to be. 
you, if you abide my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. So the freedom we all crave, crave is a freedom that comes from abiding in the truth of God. The verse is haunted by one word. If. Hey, I've been telling you for ten years now. The most consequential word in the Bible is two letters. I and F together. If. Occurs more than 5,000 times. And it always comes with prosperity or destruction hanging in the balance. If my people who are called by my name. If you do this and don't do that. If you are faithful and not rebellious. If is huge in the Bible. The verse is haunted by the word if. If we live in the word. That's abiding, live in it. If it forms our lives and our hearts. If it is embraced as God delivers it. And not as we want to hear it. That's another huge problem. That every church has to face. That every believer has to face. We've got to start hearing what God really says. Not what we want to hear. Do you know why people follow false prophets and false pastors and false churches? Because they're hearing what they want to hear. The truth is that the gospel, more often than not, confronts us and hurts our feelings. Because we're nothing like it by nature. It's not supposed to make us feel better about ourselves. It's supposed to make us feel better about Him. About the one our hope is dependent upon. Then we're true if we, if we really live in it. Then we are true. We will know the truth. We'll be intimate with it. That word know is another one of those words in the Bible that God un- completely understands how we take it. He does. And He hears it and He says, okay, I know what knowing means. We all know the intimacy of knowing, right? The physical knowing of man and wife. And the depth of knowledge of God to believer of 1 Corinthians 13. The idea that we really know. If we know, we are intimate. To know everything about. Think, think of your spouse. The person for whom you can, you can end their sentences. There are people in this room right now who if you have to go tell your husband or your wife something, you know exactly what they're going to say, don't you? You have no doubt. Because you know them, don't you? Not even like the back of your hand. More completely than that. That's the knowing. This truth isn't just... We're not just acquainted with this truth. This is a truth, a knowledge truth that comes in with a deep intimacy. And it'll set us free. Turn loose on the world to live in and out for the glory of Christ. To live it all out for the glory of Christ. So again, it never gets to be about us, does it? The real gospel always focuses on Jesus, and when it makes a heart a slave, it focuses that slave on the glory of, of the God of the gospel. It's always about Him. John builds upon this theme as he writes in 1 John 5.20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Our access to the redemptive power of the truth is through Jesus. Truth in the flesh, God among us, defining Jesus as the true God and eternal life. How does the Scriptures define our Jesus? The carpenter's son who hung up on Calvary. The, uh, the, the, the kenosis God who robbed Himself to become like a man but was not eternally a man. How does it define Him? 
as the true God and eternal life. Who is Jesus? He's the true God and eternal life. As an offer proof, John 10.30 speaks to the unity of Jesus with God the Father by saying, I and the Father are one. A caught. One. Singular. Together. In everything. And John 15.26 connects Holy Spirit with Father and Son when Jesus says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. Our Lord uses the word, Ekporeomai, to describe the sending out of the Holy Spirit from God the Father. The word means to go forth, go out, depart from, to flow forth, or to protect from the mouth of. The Holy Spirit is both from the Father and the essence are, are stuff as the Father. Therefore, He both appears by the will of the Lord and is an extension of the power, holiness, love, justice, and truth of Father and Son. The precious truth of the gospel reveals us the entirety of the everlasting trinity which is God. Once again, we're going to talk about the gospel, about who God really is. And if we have a faulty definition, we've got a faulty gospel. He is the God expressed in the trinity. To believe in God is to embrace the entire person. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as our fathers and mothers in the faith have. Anyone who's born again has embraced God in this way. Without believing in all the truth, allowing this truth to impact everything that we are as a people, night and day, work and play, then we have scant believed the gospel at all. Don't make it hard. But it is impossibly hard. But the impossible is done by God every day. Our God is all or nothing. He's redeeming or condemning. He's never neutral or benign. Our response to Him is, eh. He's either my hero or my enemy. He's either my friend or He's against me. Our focal passage reveals a distinct path within the broader Scriptures that we must follow in order to fully reveal the Gospel and its broad supernatural implications for the unbeliever and the believer. That's right, the implications are huge. Psalm 86.11 teaches us that redemptive illumination, what I mean by that is salvation through the hearing and believing of the Gospel. The truth that God has given you has changed your heart. Comes how? One, the willful submission of the human heart in requesting that the gospel truth be taught to it by God's power. A heart that craves truth and is weary of lies. I believe that one of those things that God does along that path to leading men and women to Himself is He makes us just tired of lies. We just feel covered with them. We're drowning in them. We know deep down there's got to be something more to the faith than what we see around us, than what we hear from the pulpit. It's got to be more. That God isn't going to save me and lead me to live just like I've always lived in the same agony I've always dwelt. It's got to be something different. So we get so tired of lies, our hearts made ready to receive truth. That's conviction. And embracing that the final goal of the gospel in the heart is that saved men and women walk in the truth. An outcome of authentic faith. Because what we want of this is what I believe God reveals to us is that we ought to want not, not just eternal life, but an authentic faith in God that's durable. That can bear up under all the problems. 
that can take a pounding. That will sustain me. Because we don't die and just go to heaven, do we? We die and we stay. Excuse me, we, we're saved and we stay. We stay. We're saved and we suffer. Salvation isn't, isn't immediately followed by death. Salvation comes for many of us a long life. Filled with far more questions than answers, right? A difficult life. Why did this happen to me? Anybody ever ask that question? Why didn't it work out? I did everything I could do. I worked myself to death and it still wound out up terrible. I taught and I prayed and I studied and I served and I went on mission. I did everything in the world and it still happened. I tried in every way to be faithful. And bad things came my way. That's why we need authentic faith. Real faith. You feel that bears up under every problem. Three, and that justified hearts would no longer be divided or dual, but united in fear of God. See, that's the thing that I think a lot of us are, are not maybe critical enough of ourselves about. I know I'm not. Is that my heart can be so much one way, and then there'll be this little offshoot of my heart that wants to. I, I think I've explained it to you before that one of those first things that God, first works that God did when He really brought me screaming and, and agony to the cross was my language was horrible. And God conformed my language to His image. But every once in a while, there's that little part of me that wants to use those words. That wants to express my frustration, my lashing out at the world around me by colorful language. Because there's a little offshoot of my heart that yearns to be who I was. There's that little salty part of my heart that looks back at the city I'm fleeing, the city that's doomed. That wants to hang on to that just in case I need it. I know how to be tough, and I know how to be mean, I know how to be hateful. So I'll hang on to this just in case people are rough with me. I won't conform completely to Christ. His call here is that we not be dual in hearts, that we be united in heart to the fear of God. That the way you were, you turn your back on. The way you've always been and always thought and always thought it was okay and your daddy and your mom and your grandpa and your grandma told you it's okay to do that and feel that and think that about whoever. It's all a lie. It's all hateful and from the pit of hell. And then we have to turn our backs on it. That God won't allow us to be double in heart. Whether He owns it or He doesn't. If it's given over to Him in supplication and surrender and submission, or it's not. You can't keep a little part to yourself. Just in case you need it. Just in case somebody's rough with you or something bad happens. You've got to give it all to Him. That's, that's real. Hearts are totally, joyously enslaved to the truth of God. Everything I believe about anything comes from God. How I conduct myself, how I spend my money, how I raise my kids, how I love my wife, how I work at my job. Everything comes from Him. None of it from me. I don't get to hold something out. It's okay. Well, they were mean to my kids. I get to be mean to them. No. You don't. They talk to others. You make it talk to them back. No. You don't. No, we don't. 
We either his or not. Choose. I choose, you choose. We all choose. I either belong to him or I don't. I'm either his or it's a lie. Gospel salvation is defined by these terms, and I believe they are non-negotiable. James relates the power of the message to the ultimate salvation of people when he writes in James 1.18, Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. The will of God causes the salvation of men and women through the gospel. The word of truth so that we can become a parquet. The first fruits are the beginning of the sacrifice. The natural and logical product of the holiness and power of the infinite and divine God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in heart and life prepared by the gospel for His power. So that we do not become a product of our raising or our conditions or the school we went to or the part of the country. We are a product of the gospel. We are an outpouring of Him. We are His work and not our own. My job isn't to look like I'm from Oz. My job is to look like I'm from Jesus. That my whole town is Calvary. Through salvation, excuse me, though salvation is real and vital. And the message of the cross provides redemption for sinners. It does so not just by the intentional will of God, but it saves because it reveals to the world the glory of God. In the end, it's all about God. It's all about who He is. The term glory, the doxa, which literally means exercising a personal opinion which determines value. And corresponds to the Hebrew word kabo, to be heavy, weighty. We've all done that, picked something up. And because it weighed a lot, we knew what was expensive, wasn't it? So if I buy is light, it's cheap. Pick it up, and like, man, it weighs a ton. There's a lot of stuff in it, isn't there? It's heavy. That word kabo means weighty. It's, it's the glory of it. Now, the, the theological definition is the best one I can find. God's infinite and intrinsic worth. That's what glory is. His substance and His essence. The infinite, intrinsic worth of God. When we see the glory of God, we see just how much God's worth. How giant God is and how tiny and insignificant we are. How huge God's will is and how tiny our will is. How much God must be answered to and obeyed and loved and served and worshipped. And how much it's never worth it to worship a man. Why would I worship a person, including myself, if I can worship the infinite, holy God? My songs have power. My prayer has power. My study has power. Everything about me has power. Now why? Because it's all directed at an infinite God. There's not enough. There's never enough. God has got to be huge. John, it says this in John 1.14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ Jesus is the Word made flesh who dwelled in the world, and men have seen His infinite worth as the unique and matchless Son of God. The first advent brought with it the completion of the gospel message which began in Genesis 1.1. As John adds in, in John 1.17, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The revelation of the substance and essence of the triune God is through the coming of Jesus. And the application of this identity of Christ is by way of the supernatural believing of the gospel message by hearts which are by nature rebellious. 
by nature, I am incapable of believing this. Unless God acts. Unless God does something, I die. Unless God is Boaz, looking across the field to Ruth and beckoning to the one who's undeserving of His love. He's not even the kinsman redeemer. He chooses to fight for Ruth. And God looks at you and I, the servants, who by every right ought to starve, and He looks across the field and what does He do? Come. Come, my child. Let me spread my garment over you and protect you. Men and women will spurn the truth because we all want the same thing. To do as we please and insist that no one can judge us. Every discussion I've ever had in the entire time I've been a gospel minister with anybody who's rejecting the gospel was always that one point. I don't care how smart or how common. It doesn't matter. The most brilliant people in the world and every commoner wants the same thing. They want to live the way they want to live and you can't say anything about it. No one can judge me, including God. I ought to be able to do as I want to do. The gospel says otherwise. The imperfect revelation of Jesus as the Savior God and Judge of all the world comes through His Gospels and the wider unveiling of God's character throughout the entire canon of Scripture. David reveals this in Psalm 25.5. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Our redemption is the product of each single truth of the Bible culminating at the manger, the cross, the grave, and the eastern sky. An issue for the world at large and the professing church is the pivotal question of all humanity. What will you do with the truth of the gospel? Today, every single one of us is on the hook for that one question. What will you do with the gospel? Through the gospel... Will you cling to Jesus as Savior or will you flee from Him as an enemy? How will His Gospel formulate your eternity? And how will it inspire your daily life? How will you strive for an extraordinary life in Christ via the Gospel? Or will you live like everyone else in defiance of a cosmos-altering truth? Will you choose to do it your way? Because you think you have every right. But with those rights come a grave responsibility and an outcome that's undesirable. The psalmist reminds us of the believer's relationship with and the unbeliever's responsibility to what they read and hear preached when he writes in Psalm 119.160, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The words of Christ echo across the infinity of creation and resound in our hearts today. And they come bearing a very unique gift. Scottish pastor George MacDonald, I think, states it best when he says, every truth must be accompanied by some corresponding act. When you hear the truth, there's a required response. Every listener in this room today is responsible to what they hear preached and read in the Scriptures as life-changing and direction-determining, as eternity-defining and course-setting, as character-building and sense 
enabling. It's not enough ever to be a product of the work of Christ in terms of redemption and not to be a servant and His disciple. The marks of Christ, as Paul discusses in Galatians 6.17 when he writes, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. It must be upon our bodies. We're to bear the marks of Christ. And our lives as proof to ourselves and others of the transformational power of the Gospel of the one true Son of God. The eternal, infinite, and everlasting Savior God. What will you do today with the Gospel? And what has the Gospel done to you? Surrender, beloved, please. And let the God of the Gospel, Jesus Christ, use His precious truth to form you to remove your pain, your sorrow, and your shame and give you today a reason to joyously live for His glory and not yours. Let's stand together.